0: parents know kids aren't just little adults. That's why I take mine to the one place with world-renowned doctors who treat children and only children, Boston Children's Hospital. See why U.S. News and World Report ranks us the number one pediatric hospital at bostonchildrens.org parents.
1: From WBUR Boston and Slate, hello and welcome to the Checkup Greatest Hits edition, our solidly reported and also somewhat opinionated take on health news you and your family can use. I'm Rachel Zimmerman, co host of the Common Health blog at WBUR.org. And I'm Carrie Goldberg, also co host of the Common Health blog. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Rachel. Well, in keeping with
2: our summer podcast series, for today's episode, I want to talk about C.
1: Well, Carrie, after hearing Serge Gainsbourg, how was that? (laughs) That was good. Good. I kind of feel like we need to take a shower. (laughs) But, okay, we can talk about sex now.
2: Uh, Good. But let's not just talk about it. Let's have a sexual reality check, okay? Absolutely. So here's Emily Nagoski reading from her new book about the science of female sexual
3: desire, titled Come As You Are. The day you were born, the world had a choice about what to teach you about your body, It could have taught you to live with confidence and joy inside your body. It could have taught you that your body and your sexuality are beautiful gifts. But instead, the world taught you to feel critical of and dissatisfied with your sexuality and your body. You were taught to value and expect something from your sexuality that does not match what your sexuality actually is. You were told a story about what would happen in your sexual life, and that story was false.
1: You were lied to. So, Carrie, I think all of us as adults realize that our idealized version of sex doesn't always correspond to reality. Or at all. Right. But what does Emily Nagoski really mean when she says we're being lied to? I'd like to hear some more about that.
2: Okay, we will. And we'll also talk about the possibility of great sex after 70. But first, let's bust some sexual myths
1: about men. Sexual myths about men, wow, there are so many. Uh, But I'm thinking those mostly revolve around matters of penis dimension. Okay, here's a myth, Carrie. You can tell how big a man's penis is by how big his hands or feet are.
2: Right, so that's a total urban legend. There's a weak correlation with height, but that's it, according to the biggest study
1: yet on men's penis size. So how big is it, Carrie?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rachel, the study is called Am I Normal, a systematic review and construction of nomograms for flaccid and erect penis length and circumference in up to 15,521 men.
1: That really is big. And in this case, I would think size does matter.
2: (laughs) It does. But in this context, you may not say quite a mouthful.
1: Wouldn't dream of
2: it. Thank you. So I spoke about the study and its context with Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, who's the founder of Men's Health Boston. And he's the author most recently of the book The Truth About Men and Sex, Intimate Secrets from the Doctor's Office. And I confess I had to start by asking why penis size is, for many men, forgive me, such a big thing.
0: Well, it actually, in the end, comes down to does the man think that he is large enough or let's substitute manly enough... Will he be attractive, appealing, uh, seen as some version of a stud? Mm -hmm. So we see very few men who come in about size, but in the course of conversation, it comes up all the time. And I wish I had a dollar for every time, as I'm about to examine a guy you know, that he's about to drop his pants, he says, Doc, you're not going to find that much down there, and they'll make a joke about it. And I would tell you that with very few exceptions... The men who want to have some procedure done to make their penis larger Mm tend to be at least average and sometimes generous in size.
2: Fascinating. So now let's get to this study, which I thought was worth reporting on because it's quite a useful reality check, right?
0: Okay, so here's what this study is, and it's kind of fun. This is a compilation of uh, many other previously published studies. Over 15,000 men measured when they're soft or flaccid and when they're erect. And here's what the key number is. The average erect penis length is 5.2 inches.
2: And what about the average flaccid?
0: The flaccid size was 3.5 inches, 3.6 inches, and the average circumference when, in terms of thickness when a man is erect is about 4.6 inches. Okay.
2: And this study, it not only pulled together these 15,000 medical measurements, it also put them on this nomogram chart that lets you see that basically the vast, vast majority of men are only about like an inch different from each other, right?
0: That's right. So if you go from the 10th percentile and you go all the way up to the 90th, Mm -hmm. the difference from 10th to 90th is only one and a half inches. And for those of you paying attention, that means it really goes from about 4.5 inches to 6. I
2: have to say, from the woman's point of view, that makes no
0: difference. (laughs) Yeah. So here's the thing, though, is we see a lot of men who come in who believe that they are small. And part of the reason now is especially is because of porn that we find on the internet.
2: I could so have guessed that.
0: And Mm -hmm. so we see these men who are, uh, let's call them rare
2: yeah, let's call them genetic freaks, okay?
0: <laughs> they are. They're anatomic um, the outliers. It's <laughs> yeah. a nice way to do it. Uh-huh. But men see that, especially young men, and they think, oh, my God, I don't match up. Right. Because yeah. they've seen it with their own eyes. Yeah. So, you know, we like to say, and I think it's true, <laughs> that, that the most important and the biggest sex organ is the brain. Yes. That what sexuality is about is really about their ability to connect Uh, to be uh, able to sort of give and sense what's going on with their partner. There's some give and take. There's a little bit of fantasy stuff. And and, and to get connected with what sexuality really is, which in my mind is a form of madness. How do you mean? Well, it's not rational, right? Sex is controlled by the deep reptilian part of our brain. We share this with every animal. If we didn't have sex drive, there would be no human beings. Good point. (laughs) Every animal has what's called sexual behaviors that they do, both male and female, and we connect. And so with sexuality, it's a break in the fabric of normal lives. And yet it is a part of who each of us really is. We see people who are germphobic in life, who won't touch a door handle without wiping it off, who in the middle of sex are skin on skin, sweat on sweat. You know, we see men or women who are um, captains of industry. Everybody bows to them. And yet in the middle of sex, well, maybe they like to be controlled a little
3: bit. Mr. Gray, we'll see you now.
0: I exercise control in all things, Miss Steele.
3: It must be really boring.
0: Just beyond this door. What is? My playroom.
1: Like your Xbox and stuff? Needless to say that's a clip from the movie version of 50 Shades of Grey,
2: which I didn't go to see because somebody asked me how would you feel if your daughter were dating Christian Grey and that totally wrecked the whole thing for me.
1: I read the book and the sex was okay. It was the writing that totally turned me off.
2: I know what you mean. So back to the question you asked much earlier. How are we women lied to about sex?
1: Right. When it comes to sex, men and women are both lied to and we're all just trying to play out this crazy fantasy of how things ought to be, which is so far from how things actually are, right? Anyone in a long-term relationship or a marriage knows that.
2: Right, right, right. And from the women's point of view, that's kind of the point of Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. So I asked Emily your question. How have women been
3: lied to? The model of sexuality that all of us are given is the one that comes from the expectation of how male bodies work, mostly because for so long, men were the scientists and the medical providers. They just sort of assumed that the way a man works is how women are supposed to work. So the extent to which a person in a female body does not match a person in a male body is the extent to which they have failed to be sexual people. And what are the ways that we're likeliest not to match? So there's two ways in particular. The first is in what's called arousal non-concordance. For men, there's a 50% overlap between what his genitals are doing and how turned on he feels. For women, there's about a 10% 10% overlap between what her genitals are doing and how aroused she feels. And most of the time that's because women's genitals tend to respond to sort of anything. It's like a just-in-case sort of genital response. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that she wants or likes what's happening. It just means it's sexually relevant. So arousal non-concordance, basically what you're saying is if you're a woman and you're
2: having genital response, you're having wetness, you're having blood flow, mm-hmm. that doesn't
3: mean that in your head you're necessarily turning on. Right. And it's not a problem. It's just that the way female bodies work is not identical to the way male bodies work. And that's OK. OK. And what's another big one where men and women don't match? Desire. The model we're given is that desire should be spontaneous. It occurs out of the blue. You have one stray, sexy thought, and suddenly your engine is revving, and you're thinking to yourself, I oh, would like to go find someone to hook up with. <laughs> you're rubbing your hands, which yeah.
2: is too bad people can't see. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. All right. <laughs>
3: And there's this other way of experiencing desire called responsive desire, where you're sitting there reading a magazine or flipping through channels, and your partner comes over and starts kissing your neck or caressing your arm. And every cell in your body goes, oh, right. That's a really good idea. But it doesn't occur spontaneously and out of the blue. It emerges in response to arousal instead of the desire coming before the arousal.
2: And that kind of connects, it seems to me, to these wonderful concepts that you put forward of
3: having a sexual accelerator Mm -hmm. and sexual breaks. Right. We're all sort of used to thinking about the idea of having sexually relevant stimuli happening in your life, and that hits the accelerator, right? Mm -hmm. And that sends a signal that says, go. And at the same time that that's happening, in parallel, there is a break, that notices all the very good reasons not to be turned on right now. So you're in, in public. the middle of a business meeting <laughs> or you're not totally sure you trust your partner or there's risk of unwanted pregnancy or STI transmission or you feel critical about your own body or you have a history where sex was used as a weapon against you. All of those things can keep the brakes hit and it. Almost doesn't matter how much you hit the gas pedal, if the brake is on, you're still not going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So most of the time when people experience sexual difficulties, it's not because of a lack of stimulation to the gas pedal. It's because there's too much stimulation to the brake. Mm -hmm. It's normal to experience ambivalence around sexual desire, something can both hit the gas pedal and the brake at the same time. So if you want something and are having trouble getting yourself there, that's normal and natural. Identifying the stuff that hits your brakes and learning to change your context so that you can remove those things from hitting your brake is a completely different approach to changing your sexual functioning from what we thought of before, the usual advice is lingerie and role play and glass of wine. Sexy stories and a glass of wine. Actually, a <laughs> glass of wine is a thing that lifts the brakes. One drink ah, is disinhibiting, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. which just... is why people give the advice of have a glass of wine. Um, but if people are having that level of distress, then one glass of wine isn't going to be enough to make a significant difference.
1: Hmm. So Emily Nagoski's basically saying that we have a whole bunch of false expectations and they get in the way of enjoying our sex lives to the max. Yes. And she
2: says we all have very individual responses in sex. But I asked her if we try to get more general, what would be more correct expectations? Here's what she said.
3: Sex is most satisfying for most women in a context that is low stress, high trust, High affection and explicitly erotic sounds good to me. That's what works for most <laughs> women, right? It's not surprising. It doesn't. Right. It's not rocket science. But like, if you're not responding sexually, is your stress level high? Is your trust level low? Where's the affection in your relationship? And is it sexy yet? Right,
1: right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Low stress, plenty of time, and a clean house are pretty damn sexy. Sexy indeed, Rachel. But let's just hold up there a minute and
2: take a little time for a message from our sponsor. When our son broke his arm, we didn't think he needed
3: special attention.
0: I didn't when I broke mine.
3: But it was easy to see a doctor at Boston Children's Hospital, so we went.
0: They noticed the break was on its growth plate.
3: That meant a little fracture could have been a lot more serious.
0: Now we wouldn't take him anywhere else.
3: No matter what it is, simple or not so
0: simple. Because nothing's more important to us than getting our kid back to being a kid again. See why U.S. News and World Report ranks Boston Children's Hospital in the number one pediatric hospital at bostonchildrens.org slash parents.
2: Okay, now, Rachel, let's take it all forward a few decades. Out to our 70s? Why not? And to some very good news if you're getting up there. What would you say if I told you there's a sort of a
1: geriatric sexual revolution going on? I would say, yeah, <laughs> thank God for that. <laughs> Actually, a, a relative of mine who's in her 90s started dating a guy she met at the 92nd Street Y in New York, and he was 102. Wow! And she said to me, I'm really enjoying my 90s. Uh, I love that. I love that, too. And what would you say if
2: I told you that some 70-something women are having their best sex Ever. I think I'd say, really? Yeah, I don't blame you. But I'm here to tell you a substantial minority of senior women, maybe about a fifth of them, do report very happy sex lives, whether with a partner or by themselves. There's a book by Iris Krasnow called Sex After that shares some of their stories, even tales of women having their first orgasms in their golden years. Now, that would certainly make it golden. (laughs) Even more golden than before. And that rings true to Dr. Aileen Zoldbrod. She's a sex and couples therapist and author of the book, Sex Smart, How Your Childhood Shaped Your Sexual Life and What to Do About It. All these very long titles. (laughs) She says that surveys repeatedly find a cohort of men and women ranging in age from their 60s to their 80s and above who are having active, enjoyable, single or partnered sex lives.
1: Why not? You know, I've read recently about the hijinks that go on in some nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Back to high school.
0: Welcome to what's known as Disney World for Old People, the village. Villages, Florida's wildest retirement community that's home
1: to some 100,000 swinging seniors. Ten women to every man. Booze at the Villages is cheap, and the Villages has a thriving black market in Viagra that will keep you up all night. Downsides? Well, the Villages has some of the highest rates of STDs in the US, but hey, what's a little chlamydia amongst friends? Perhaps a slight yuck factor here for some, but... Maybe not. Well, I certainly don't dream of chlamydia
2: and Viagra in my golden years. But I had to ask Aileen Zoldbrod, as you said, Rachel, really? Is it really true? Best sex after 70?
4: Really? Yes, it is. This is a truth for a group of older women, according to the research. But I think it has lessons for all older women who want to maintain their sexuality and want to have some hope of having a romance in their older years. Mm Mm-hmm. How big of a group? The statistics from an AARP study and a couple other studies seem to indicate that about 20% of older women are having really good sex. And we're talking about women in their 70s and 80s. 20%. Yeah. Wow. Now, you're
2: talking about elders who are lucky in a variety of ways, right? What, Absolutely. what do you mean?
4: Well, being happy sexually for women always correlates with being happy in the relationship. then And being sexual when you're older often correlates with good health. Being physically active. Yes. So that's a very lucky group of people. And one person who wrote in on Facebook, I was actually touched, said, Okay. And these are probably also people who are not stressed about money. And I thought yeah. that was a wonderful point. If you're busy worrying about your basic needs, you're probably not fooling around and being sexual. You're trying to get your Medicare check so you can buy some food. Right. And also it's people who do have time, like they're
2: not caring full time for their grandchildren. Right. Or and they're like not
4: that. working in their 70s. You know, they're not right. bagging groceries because they have no money for food. So right. they're lucky right. in that way, too.
2: One of the most pivotal things I thought you wrote was that these women who say that they're having great sex even into their 70s, they're probably doing what you as a sex therapist would often recommend to your patients or clients to do, right? What do you
4: mean by that? We have some information on the kind of sex women want, and for a lot of women, it's very different from the male recipe. So the person who's done a lot of writing on this that I love is named Gina Ogden, and she wrote this book called Women Who Love Sex. And she interviewed a lot of women who love sex, and they talked about what was important to them. And what was important to them was whole body touch, not just primary erotic areas. Eyeball to eyeball, belly to belly, connected time. Hmm. So you're talking about a very relaxed way of being that creates a lot of wonderful sensation and sort of mergey feelings and Emergy. a connected feeling, mm-hmm. and that's the kind of sex women who've been very lucky like, mm-hmm. and it's not the kind of sex that young men like, <laughs> but it's the kind of sex that older men are probably better off with because they have more trouble with erections, and it's just a shift that older men make too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what's so
2: interesting is that this kind of great sex that you're. Describing is happening among older people who, I mean, let's face it, as we get older, our bodies tend to get more imperfect. Absolutely. But, but what you're saying is that you can have this kind of very
4: intimate relations even with a ever more imperfect body. Absolutely. The other piece that makes so much sense to me about these older people is if you think that you can have really good short sex in an ongoing married or very intimate relationship where you don't have a lot of adrenaline. Right. No, you need a lot of touching so that you can get relaxed in your body to get your body down to a baseline of relaxation mm-hmm. and then build a sexual charge on top of the base of relaxation. Mm-hmm and that's what these women were doing and that's what they had the time to do.
2: Were there a couple of stories that most sort of embodied this this kind of phenomenon for you? Well,
4: one had to do with women who weren't even partnered. There were women who told Dr. Ruth Westheimer that they were interested in having fun with sex toys and could they get some advice on sex toys. So there were actually women in their 70s and older who were becoming orgasmic for the first time. If you're a sex therapist, that's just thrilling. That's orgasmic for you. (laughs) I just <laughs> throwing it really is uh,
2: it's the geriatric sexual revolution it right totally
4: right? is
1: <laughs> well Carrie that gives me hope for the future and maybe we can finally after we get into our 70s have our expectations aligned with reality yeah it kind of makes me look forward to my 70s maybe I'll keep my AARP card the next time it comes in the mail instead of ripping it up <laughs> I know you keep throwing it away and they keep coming so that's it for today Join us next time when we discuss the most prevalent mental health disorder.
0: High anxiety whenever you're near.
1: The Checkup is produced at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station, by George Hicks, who also composed and performed our theme music. The executive editor of WBUR Podcasts is Iris Adler, Andy Bowers and Joel Meyer run Slate Podcasts. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. And I'm Carrie Goldberg. See you next time. See you, Carrie. See you, Rachel.